can turn in your Bible with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, if you're just joining us today or if you're in town visiting, uh, we're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs was written largely by a man named Solomon. The Bible tells us he was the wisest man that has ever lived, and not because he happened to be a particularly gifted guy, but because God granted him this special uh, dispensation, the special gift of grace of wisdom in his life. And, and uh, one of the tragedies of Solomon's life is it's a man who, uh, if, you, if you track his biography, and it, you have to kind of piece it together in the narrative portions of Scripture and in a couple of books that he contributed to, Solomon is a man who started off very well. Uh, his father, of course, was King David, uh, the man after God's own heart. He had a, a great background coming into that uh, early on in his life. Uh, you remember he, there's that moment where um, uh, God asks him, you know, what do you want? And he asks for wisdom, and God says, well, because you asked for wisdom to lead my people instead of riches or, or prestige or something like that, he says, I'm not only going to grant you this wisdom, but I'm going to make you this very prominent, very wealthy. Uh, th- this man, um, I mean, this was the guy that all of the surrounding nation leaders wanted to go see and meet because of his stature, because of his wisdom. His reputation uh, was unsurpassed at this time in history. And, and then we read, uh, as you get into the narrative sections, Solomon had a, uh, an Achilles heel of weakness, if you will, and it was women. And ironically, as we're reading in Proverbs chapter 5 today, Solomon, a dad, is sitting down with his boys, uh, still young, still in the home, and he is talking to them about the fear of the Lord. He's basically unfolding for his children in all of these different aspects of life, from friends to work to emotions uh, to getting along with people to parents uh, to to temptation like this in in terms of sexual temptation. Uh, he's, He's shepherding his children, helping him to see how a walk with God affects all of these areas of life so that these young men in his home can grow up and walk in wisdom. And of course, Solomon, at some time, probably subsequent to writing these things, uh, was attracted to all of these other women around him from the surrounding nations. And, and as the text tells us um, in, uh, in Kings and Chronicles, um, these women pulled his heart away from Yahweh, the true God of Scripture, to these foreign gods that these other ladies worshipped in the surrounding nations. And and that was Solomon's downfall. And and in fact, uh, his biography in the Scripture is actually preserved for us in a book called Ecclesiastes. And we read about that. And it's a wonderful book, and and we don't have time to get into all of it. But but what Solomon shows us is as he went after those women, uh, the Bible tells us he had a thousand women in terms of wives, and concubines, or we might think of them as as girlfriends, um, going after all those things, having all this money, all this status. He says, there there was nothing in life that I looked at and said, I want that, that he didn't have. You imagine having that. Imagine having enough money and enough power that there was nothing in life you could say, I want one of those, or I want to be that. And by the snap of a finger, you could have it. That was Solomon. And yet he goes all throughout this book... And what does he say, if you know Ecclesiastes? I tried this, I tried that, I went after this, I went after that, and all of it was havel, is the Hebrew word. It means vanity. It means um, a great analogy is in in the morning when you make your coffee and you pour it in, there's steam, and that steam comes up and then it disappears. Right? That's havel. It's there for a minute and then it's gone. So you, you have that moment of satisfaction 
and then it leaves. And you say, that's it? And then you try something else. And you try. Solomon says, I tried everything, and it was all havel. It was all vanity. It all was not satisfying ultimately. It did not last. And, of course, the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion of really his life, which is a testimony of what is really true, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the first couple of verses, he says what? The only thing that matters is this, fear God and keep his commandments. That, that, that is the only solid foundation upon which we can build our lives. So, so Solomon, he starts off well teaching his children, teaching them about purity. He falls into that very sin, completely obliterates his testimony in the process, and yet it's a story of grace, isn't it? Because at the very end of his life, as Ecclesiastes tells us, he repents and he comes back and he sees, I've blown it, I've tried all these things, and it is true that the fear of the Lord, walking with God in simple dependence, is what really matters. Um, so we have a, a very interesting author in terms of the, the human author here in the book of Proverbs. Um, and we're going to kind of parachute back in. Uh, we're, we're calling uh, this part of our study... Um, a strategy for avoiding sexual sin. And we're looking at seven habits for avoiding sexual sin. And just by way of review, uh, for the first few verses that we've looked at, let's just go over uh, where we've been. Uh, in the first few verses, Solomon, as is often his case, not just with the topic of sexual sin, but with any topic in life, he directs the attention of his children to the Word of God. And, and, and this, is, um, this is a book that really has two purposes. Yeah, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student, if you're a young person, high school student, this is, this is a book in the Bible that is really written for you. It's really designed for a younger audience. So if you've got teenagers in your house, you've got college students that are uh, thinking about heading off to college here in another month or so, this is the book that God inspired particularly for our young people. But it also has this other, this other aspect to it, and that is uh, it's a book that comes to young people but via parents. Because it's written by a parent, and, and by implication, it's a parenting book too, because we're learning something of how to shepherd and instruct children along the way. So if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, even if you're a great-grandparent, this is a great book to learn from in terms of that. So, so this first strategy here, arm yourself with wisdom from God's Word, we see Solomon right out of the gate drawing his son's attention to, it says here, wisdom, understanding, discretion, knowledge. And, and of course, in the context of the the book that's not Solomon's wisdom and knowledge it's knowledge and wisdom that comes from the word of God so we, we might say that the first strategy that that Solomon is employing with his children is you have to be in the word of God if you're going to be growing if you're going to be changing if you're going to be arming yourself to battle sexual temptation in, in fact a, a great way to be a easy target for the enemy is to simply keep this book closed and to stay out of it um, this, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How many times are you going to eat today? How many times have you eaten today? Maybe we shouldn't ask. That's, that's too, too convicting of a question, isn't it? You've probably had at least one meal so far today. You're probably going to have at least one more, maybe a couple more. Maybe some little meals in between those other meals, right? The, the point is we need physical sustenance 
regularly, daily, multiple times a day. And Jesus takes that as an analogy and says, you know what, that's not really what man depends upon. Now certainly that is physically, but, but in an analogous way, we need the Word of God just as much as that daily sustenance. And so we need to be in the pages of Scripture. This is a great time to be building into our young people daily Bible reading, daily Bible um, devotions. And, and not just that, um, how do they study the Word of God? How can they glean from it themselves? And certainly family worship, we could talk about that at this time. But, but that's the point. We need to be in the Word of God. And, and this is, again, not unique to sexual temptation. This is what Solomon is going to say about all of life. He's going to say, son, you need to be in the Scriptures. That is how we know God and commune with him. Number two, second strategy, understand the deceitfulness and destructiveness of immorality. If we just look back to verse three, the lips of the adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Um, by way of reminder, that word adulterous, and sometimes uh, you may have a different version, different word in your Bible, um, strange woman, foreign woman, immoral woman. The, the, the Hebrew word literally means stranger or strange woman. Actually, it's, it's female, so strange woman. And, and what Solomon is getting at is this is anybody who is not your spouse, they're strange in the sense that you're not married to them. That's, that's the idea. So this is any, if you're a man, this is any woman who would come into your life that you're not married to, and yet there is, there is some sort of sexual temptation or attraction happening in that relationship. If you're a woman, this is any man that you're not married to in which there's any sort of sexual attraction or temptation. And Solomon is saying, because of our fallenness, we see somebody who is not our spouse or we meet somebody who is not our spouse and there can be an attraction to that person. And notice how Solomon notes the, the, um, uh, the, the attractiveness, the, um, um, the pleasure here. Uh, the, her lips drip honey smoother than oil is her speech. You know, so there, there's attraction, there's pleasure and yet Solomon is saying to his, to his sons, you've got to understand that that is deceit. That's an illusion. That, that attraction that you feel that says this, this is something desirable. You're not married to her. You're not married to him. But there's something valuable, something good. There's something pleasurable. Solomon is saying, stop right there. Pull the car over. And son, you've got to see that that's a lie. That's a lie. You say, well, why is that? Well, it says because actually, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shield. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. She looks good. She sounds good. And yet, in the end, she will kill you. Okay, now this is not beating up on, on the immoral woman. What this is saying is the act of sexual sin will take you to a very destructive place. And apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus to rescue you off of that path, it says here, um, her steps take hold of Sheol. Her path goes down to death. She will take you to hell if you're not careful, is what Solomon is saying. And, but the point here is not just the, the, the it's the destructiveness, but it's, it's the deceit that in the, the, the reason temptation has momentum 
is because of the deceit factor. And we talked about this. The reason you and I continue to struggle with the same temptations is because we keep believing the same lies about sin. If a young man says, I am so stressed. I, I, I can't put up with these college classes. I'm taking 18 credits and I've got papers and I've got this and that and friends and my job and all that. I just need to relax. And the false refuge that he has found to relax is looking at pornography. And he believes in that moment what I need to relax is to look at this. That's the solution. That's how I feel better. That's how I'm going to get through this busy, stressful semester. And and part of helping someone with a, a situation like that is saying, that's a lie. I do not need to disobey and to dishonor my Savior in order to be okay in the stress of life. There's a better refuge. There's the Lord Jesus himself. There are graces that God gives us to deal with those pressures of life. But the deceit of sin in that moment is, I've got to, this is the only answer. This is my only hope to get through this day. And and that's not just true, that's true with addictions, that's true with stealing, it's true with all sorts of stuff. It's the lies, it's the deceit behind temptation that gives it momentum. And conversely, if we can see through the lie in the moment, if, if the bass swimming around in Lake Granbury right now could see the hook underneath the lure that looked like something appetizing, he may not bite it. And that's the point. You've got to see through the deceit and lies of sin so you don't clamp down on it and find out actually it's you that have been hooked at that point. So there's deceit and destruction and morality. And, and parents, grandparents, part of training our young people in this is helping them to see through the lies and deceit that not just sexual sin promises, but all of this worldliness around them, whether it's entertainment, whether it's a relationship, uh, whether it's a certain way uh, of um, uh, hanging out with friends, you know, whatever it is, to see through that. Number three, don't go anywhere near temptation. Uh, he's going to tell here in the next few verses, don't go near the door of her house, verse 8, keep your way far from her. Uh, don't, this is the Joseph method of dealing with temptation, right? You, you leave your coat and you run away. You remove yourself from the temptation. And that's a, uh, that's a great, uh, just real practical tip too. Uh, if you're a young person and, um, it's not just the question of if you're struggling with sexual morality, but to what extent and where, um, where are the areas of your life where you tend to be particularly tempted? Let's just ask ourselves that question. Where are the areas of my life that I'm particularly prone to temptation? And we just think about that. It's going to be different for all of us. We'd all answer that question a little differently. And what Solomon is saying is avoid putting yourself in those situations where you know, just in your own personal struggle, don't go to that place where you know you're going to compromise. And and uh, Jesus is going to pick up on this later on in Matthew chapter 5. He's going to say, if you if you find something in your life that, that is a regular source of temptation, he's going to say, cut it off and get rid of it. And, and that's, that's why, whether it's an adultery situation, a pornography situation, a homosexuality situation, uh, some other form of fornication here, if, if you're going to succeed in growing out of that, you must be committed to cutting off any source of temptation in your life, whether it's your phone or computer, whether it's 
um, you know, the job that you have, whether it's the way that you drive home, you know, whatever, whatever it is that leads you to that place where you know, I'm going to be tempted if you go there. Jesus says, following Solomon here, you need to get rid of it. You need to avoid going down that road. And uh, you'll remember in chapter 7, just a couple chapters after this, Solomon's talking to his son, and he says, Hey, son, you look out the window? He says, Yeah, Dad, I look out the window. You see that boy standing at that corner there? Yeah, Dad, I see him. Do you know why he's standing there? And his boy says, No, Dad, I don't know. He says, Because that's where the prostitutes hang out. And he's going there hoping to meet a girl. And Solomon says to his son, that's the first problem, son. He's going to the wrong place. He's putting himself in a place where he is going to be unduly tempted. And that's stupid. He actually says that in Romans, in, uh, in verse chapter 7. Don't go there. Okay? So there we are. That brings us up to speed. Don't go anywhere near temptation. Let's pick it up now in verse 9. Consider the long-term consequences. Consider the long-term consequences. And this is where we pick it up in our notes, if you have your notes there in front of you. Um, Consider the long-term consequences, okay? Let's look at these together. Verse 9. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien, and you will groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart has spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. What Solomon is doing here with his boys now is he's moving to another area. Remember, he's trying to unpack a strategy for his kids to avoid sexual sin. We talked about you got to be in God's word, right? You got to see through the deceitfulness and destructiveness of sin. You've got to stay away and flee temptation and cut it off if, if, if that's an area of problem. And he says the fourth thing is you need to think about the long-term consequences. Now, we have all, and talk to me if this isn't true, we have all made decisions in life that we regret. Can we all say, yes, we've done that, okay? And what Solomon is trying to do here is to take... You think about the attention span of your average teenager. It's about 17 seconds, and that's if food is involved, okay? Um, and, and a teenager is exceedingly short-sighted in their perspective, right? They're thinking about now. They're thinking about the immediate. And what Solomon is doing here is actually really, really instructive for us as parents. He's saying, uh, parent, you have to constantly broaden your child's outlook in terms of thinking about life. It's not just, hey, what's going to be great right now? It's, what's going to happen if you do that? What kind of person are you going to become if you keep on doing that activity? And, and parents talk to me here. Don't we have to do this? You, you've got to get... They're, they're looking at today. Actually, they're not looking at today. They're looking at you know the, the 30 minutes that they're living in right now. And you're trying to help them to think about a little bit broader of a horizon, right? A little bit further out. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's, he, you, can, you can see him saying, Son, think about what it would be like if you got caught up into sexual immorality. What would your life be like on the day 
when you got caught? What would your life be like in the day that the congregation, the people of God, heard about how you'd been living? What would your life be like on the day when you say, I've had Awana leaders, I've had Sunday school leaders, I have men and women who have invested in me, my parents, godly friends that have poured their life into me, and I didn't listen to their counsel. And now your life is filled with guilt and shame. That's what he's trying to get them to see. Okay, now he's going to unpack some specifics there. But the, the big picture parents, the big picture grandparents is broadening the horizon to think beyond the moment. In, in fact, that's good for old people too, like us. We're not just picking on the teenager. That's good for old people like us, isn't it? When we are focused on the moment, we're probably going to sin. We're probably going to make a bad decision. Part of righteous living, part of godly choices is not looking at the moment, but looking at the big picture. Thinking about it more broadly in terms of what we're trying to do. Um, and even in parenting, I remember something, uh, uh, I think it was Ted Tripp said in, in Shepherding a Child's Heart. Um, the temptation of parents is to be moment-oriented rather than goal-oriented in parenting. So, so we, we fall into that trap too, don't we? Okay, so, so that's the picture. Helping our kids to think about the consequences, a broader perspective. Don't just think about the next 17 minutes. Think about the, the, the broader implications here. Okay, so let's look at these together. Uh, consider the long-term consequences. Look at the first one. Contemplate the high price you will pay for the rest of your life. Contemplate the high price you will pay for the rest of your life. Verse 9. Or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, and strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods go to the hand of an alien. You guys are familiar with... um, There's a way... Uh, it's a fun little poet, poet, uh, poetry thing that happens a lot of times in the poetic uh, portions of our Bible um, where the author arranges the structure in a way that makes an arrowhead. Do you see that there? He writes the stanzas in a way where there's these outside elements and then these inside elements, and it makes an arrowhead uh, if you were looking at it in the Hebrew language. And you say, well, that's fun. What does that mean? What it's, what it's doing, it's a poetic way of saying, focus on this. Focus on the center elements. It's called a chiastic structure. If you guys have been here for a while, I've talked about this before. And that's what he does here. It's a way of focusing his son's attention on what he's trying to say. Um, the, what would we do in, in our parenting? This might be where we would raise our voice a bit. This might be where we would, we would say, son, this is really serious. So this is the main point, right? And he's putting the arrowhead, he's putting the focus of these verses on your vigor and your years, on your strength and your hard-earned possessions. Those are the center points of this. And he's saying, son, think about all that God has given you. Think of your youth, your, your giftedness, your ability, your energy. Think about all that. How do you want those resources to be used? Do you want to waste those? Do you want to waste your gifts and your talents and your energy, your hard-earned goods, your paycheck? Is that what you want? You want to waste that? And it says here, what are you going to waste it on? You're going to waste it on strangers and foreigners. There it is. The the woman who's not your wife, the husband uh, or the man who's not your husband. And uh, instead of spending your best years walking in purity, serving the Lord, 
you will look back on your life and say, I wasted my 20s. I wasted my teens. And he's saying, do you really want to, do you really want to think back and say, my best years when I was energetic and I could survive on three hours of sleep and I didn't need so much coffee as I need now to survive, right? Those days. And I wasted them on sinful living. The long-term consequences of, of immorality, listen to this, is having to support someone else and potentially kids that may come out of that relationship. So this was written in the 9th century B.C. You know what this is talking about? Child support. If you go after that woman that you're not married to, Levitical law, first of all, applying to the nation of Israel, may require you to marry that person. Remember that? So you may be required to marry this foreigner, this stranger, this prostitute. And on top of that, if there are children, you are now financially responsible for the care of those children for the rest of your life. You say, we're supposed to be talking to our 13 and 14 year olds about this? Yes! Because now's the time they need to think about those things. Before, long before they ever get to that, that point of decision. And hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll be so far away from temptation that they won't ever be in that situation. That's what he's saying. He said, contemplate the high price you will pay, your energy, your giftedness, your strength, those, those wonderful years of your youth. And thinking about the consequences of having to support someone that you're not married to and any children that may come from that. Now, now that, that's the right thing to do, right? I mean, if you are irresponsible and you sleep with somebody and there is a child that comes from that relationship, that is the right thing to do, is to care for that child. Absolutely. But Solomon is singing on the front end and saying, that's not God's design. That, that's not God's intent in terms of how a relationship like that should come together. So think about those high prices that you'll pay for the rest of your life. Number two, think about the end of your life in eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Look at verse 11. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Um, Solomon changes the language here, and he's now focusing on a future event. And when you study these verses, what he's saying is this. A main attraction of sexual immorality is the pleasure it brings your body. What's going to happen when you're old and you're toward the end of your life and your body is shot and all you have is eternal consequences? And because of the choices you've made in your life, your eternal destiny is judgment, not eternal life with God. What is, here, here, here's, here's the question. What value will those fleeting bodily pressures be at that day when you're facing the judgment seat of God? He says, contemplate the eternal consequences. Is it worth it? Is that really worth it? And he's, he's making his kids play this through. Think beyond lunch today, please, son. Think Long term, think when your grandpa's age, when your great grandpa's age, when, when you're facing a disease and it's probably going to take you to your grave. What do you want your life to be like? Are you eternally prepared? He says. 
when your flesh and your body are over, right? Sexual sin feeds on the now, on the present, and does not think ahead. It does not consider the future consequences. And as we noted in Matthew chapter 5 last time, Jesus said, there are eternal consequences if you are not willing to deal with your sexual sin in a radical way. Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're not fighting this with gospel grace, you're not a Christian and your destiny is eternal destruction. Okay, so think about the end of your life and eternal consequences. Number three, rehearse in your mind the regret and the guilt you may have. Um, uh, Alan and I just were at a conference in San Diego a couple weeks ago, um, and the whole conference was on addictions. So you had the the world-class speakers talking about drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pornography, gambling, all these these things you can do that now fly under the the big umbrella of, of addiction. And one of the speakers got up and he said this, and I thought it was very, very insightful. He said this, Every addict lives with shame. Right? And and if you've ever cared for a person struggling with addiction, a family member, a friend, you know that's true. Okay, now that's not unique to addiction. Um, shame is associated with all sorts of sin. But it really is true when we're thinking about sexual sin, other addictions. Every addict lives with shame. And again, Solomon, in, in uh, the wisdom that God gives him in writing this, turns his son's attention and says, Son, I want you to think about this. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 12. And you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. You can, you can see what he's doing here. He's saying, son, think about being on that other side of your sin. If you go after and pursue sexual sin in your life, you're on the other side of that. And you're looking back, and you're looking back with shame, and you're looking back with regret, and you're looking back saying, why did I not listen? Still focus on the long-term consequences. Solomon is, is it, it's a hypothetical speech. He's saying, son, think about this. Think about this is you saying this about your life and the regret that you have. He says, um, I've hated instruction. You know what that means? Have you had, just, just think with me on this. Is there somebody in your life that loves you enough to tell you biblical truth? Do you have anybody in your life like that who loves you enough to tell you biblical gospel truth? This is the part where you nod your head, slip your hand up, say yes. Okay. All right. Amen. Okay, that's good. Okay. And and, and you have a, a wonderful church like this where we speak the truth and love to one another. Pastor Terry preaches from the word every Sunday faithfully, biblically. Uh, most of you come... Uh, have a godly heritage, godly families, you're raising children to know God, to walk with Him. Do you know how many people don't have any of those things? The vast majority of people have nobody speaking gospel, biblical truth to their life. Now, they're still responsible 
for not walking with God, right? We understand that. They have the moral law of God and they can see God in creation. Romans 1 stuff, we understand that. But what Psalm is saying is, he's saying, son, you have had the benefit of sitting under godly teachers. You've had the benefit of sitting under godly parents. You, you've, had tr- you've known truth your whole life. You've known a biblical worldview your whole life. You know how rare that is. And to waste it by saying, I didn't listen. I got to the point where I hated that. I, 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 I blocked it out, he says. And he wasted it. And now he's on the other side saying, with regret and guilt and shame, my heart has spurned reproof. He had, he had people in his life who loved him enough to say, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. This is not the way to honor God. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Um, Many years ago, I think it was in seminary, um, uh, we had a guest speaker who came and talked to us pastors in training, seminary students, about the dangers of sexual sin and particularly adultery. And I, I remember, I remember who the speaker was. I remember him saying this. He, he, he said, guys, I want you to take some time and write out what would happen to you, what would happen to your marriage, what would happen to your family, what would happen to your ministry if you fail morally, if you fall into adultery or some other moral failure. Um, I did that. I have a page in my journal that is horrific to read. What would happen in my life? In one moment of making a stupid decision. I can't even talk to you about it. But I need that. And you need that. And our young people need that. That's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, son, put down the Xbox. Put your phone down for a minute. And think about what your life would really look like if that was the case. Now, Solomon understood the gospel. And he understands, he understands better than any other author, probably, that there is grace and there is forgiveness when we fail for these things. And, and we're, we're here not to, not to promote perfection in life. We're here to say there is a God of grace who forgives when we fail and who gives us his very own righteousness in Christ and his own spirit so that we begin to walk in a growing purity and a growing morality and a growing righteousness in our life experientially. So this is not a gospelless text because there isn't one of us in this room that has lived a perfect life of sexual purity across the board. There's none of us. 
But what he's saying is, we need to get out of the moment and think about the other side. What would my life be like if I failed in that way? And I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to do that. You don't have to be a pastor or in some sort of vocational ministry. I think that's a great exercise to do, to talk about what your life would be like if you were to fall into any number of, of uh, sin issues. What does he say here, 13 and 14? Not only haven't I listened, but I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. He, he, he's thinking here of the publicity of what he did in sexual sin, the publicity of that in the congregation of the nation of Israel. This is the son of the king of Israel. This is, this is not staying out of the Israeli tabloids. You understand that, right? This is, this is going to go all around the nations. And notice, this is so important. Solomon never, ever, ever, ever says, think about the shame that you would bring me and your mom. Considering he was the king of Israel. He says, think about the shame Think about the guilt. Think about your reputation. Not for us, but before the Lord. That's what really matters. The regret is deep at the realization of his foolishness. He never listened. He never learned. He was not teachable when reproof was offered. And, and young person, teenager, can I just say this for a minute? That's why when your parents are reproving you. They are correcting you in the some way. That is why it is so important to learn to humble yourself and receive instruction and corrective criticism. It may be about putting the dishes right in the dishwasher. And you say, Pastor Keith, there is no eternal significance to that. I know. But you are training your heart to push away correction. And when you train your heart, teenager, to push away correction, to not receive constructive feedback, to, to, to shields up, right? I don't want to hear it. When you do that, it's not that putting the dish in the dishwasher is an eternally significant issue. It's that you're training your heart to not receive correction. And it just may be in that moment when you need something that is eternally significant, you need correction related to that, you've trained your heart to not hear it. So let's all humble ourselves and learn how to receive reproof and correction from godly friends that are trying to speak the truth and love to us. Last point. Consider the long-term consequences. It is this. Meditate on the shame you will bring upon your testimony to others. That's where he lands. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly in the congregation. Here the emphasis is on a lost Testimony. It's as if the one who has given to a life of immorality finally looks around at the end of his life, realizes what people must think of him, and his testimony is shot. And notice the word here. I was almost in ruin in the midst of the assembly in congregation. Solomon says to his boys, now's the time to think about that. Now's the time to think about the testimony that you want to have. Sitting down with your spouse and telling him or her what you did. 
sitting down with your children and telling them what you did. Uh, Sitting down with your pastor, with your small group, and saying, I blew it. And Solomon says to his boys, if you don't like those thoughts, now is the time to get serious about your walk with God. Now is your time to grow as a young person, to be putting these graces into your life. Not, not because you're never going to be tempted, but because you are going to be tempted, and you've got to prepare for that. You know, you're in this, this artificial safety zone called your parents' house, and you're going to get launched out into college, in the workplace, in the military, wherever you go, with many dangers, toils, and snares. And at that point, it's, it's your walk with God. It's you and God. Notice one little word, and we need to look at this. He says, I was almost in utter ruin. See the little word, almost? That's the grace in this chapter. The grace in this chapter is, you know what, son? There is hope for us in the gospel. There is hope for sinners like you and me. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with sexual sin. There is hope. There is always redemptive hope, even when we failed. Even when we blow it, there's always grace and forgiveness. You remember what what John tells um, his readers in 1 John? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. How's it go? To forgive us of our sins. And then this little clause. Do you love it like I do? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah says to the people in the the wake of idolatry, in the wake of of just going after other gods, in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they can be made as wool if you will repent. And so we know that, that Solomon punctuates this very, very sobering section with gospel hope saying, you know what, it's not all lost cause because there is always hope, there is gospel grace, there is gospel forgiveness, there is cleansing. But we don't want to presume on that. We want to, in light of that, pursue a life of purity before God. And, and, and parents, grandparents, our young people are never going to get this if we are not committed to a life of purity ourselves. So let's, let's commit ourselves with God's grace and help to be the type of examples that there's credibility in our instruction as we seek to minister to our children, our grandchildren, our young people here in our church. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a very um, sobering, it's just the word, it keeps coming back. It is a sobering section as we think about the ruin and the havoc and the guilt and the shame and the consequences both now and eternally that can happen in one moment of being foolish. So, Father, we pray, we pray two things. pray two things as we conclude today. The first is, Lord, as we think about our own mistakes and our own failures, whether they're failures in sexual sin or failures in other ways, We want to thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that forgives and cleanses and cleans and renews so that you don't see those things in Christ. You see the perfect righteousness of your Son. And we thank you that there is always forgiveness, always redemption, always grace with you, no matter what we do, no matter how far we fall. And we're grateful for that. And Lord, secondly, we would pray 
that by your grace, by the indwelling spirit and the word of God sanctifying our hearts, that we would be men and, and women who walk in purity in a perverse and wicked and immoral generation. And that we would be not perfect examples, not not people that have ever failed, but we would be authentic examples to our young people of what it means to cling to the gospel and to walk in grace. And that our young people, Father, would be influenced early on to make godly choices, that they would take their walk with you seriously and would be growing and and seeking you in the word and, and so, so aware of their ability to fall. And so they run to you and they cling to you and they walk with you and Father, we pray that our young people would have a serious and maturing and growing walk with you and that you would spare them, by your grace, you would spare them the type of moral failures that we've been talking about this morning. Lord, we believe that in the gospel it is possible for a young person to walk in purity. And we pray it would be so for our own. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christ. Would he be at work in our lives in these things, we pray in Christ's name.